By this point in the series, you can probably rattle off a few elements that take their names from countries, even when it's not entirely obvious. But we're not dealing with one of those today. Humans have been collecting silver far longer than we've been writing down names. So enamored have we been with its keen shine that we've actually gone the exact opposite direction and named a country after the element. The land that holds such a bounty of element 47 is Argentina, named after the Latin word for silver, argent. No other country on earth borrows its name from the periodic table. If only one element can have the honor, that was a pretty good choice. In silver, we see ourselves. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we're bringing out the good silver. It's really not fair that silver should be so associated with second place, because by chemical metrics, it takes first. It's the most conductive metal of both heat and electricity on the periodic table. And it's also the most reflective when it comes to visible light. Reflectivity is synonymous with mirrors. And, indeed, the finest mirrors we can produce are made of glass with a thin layer of silver on one side. But that wasn't always the case. It's only in the past few centuries that we've been able to grind glass that was both transparent and wouldn't crack as soon as it touched molten hot metal. We knew the glass and silver combination should work in theory. Our old friend Pliny the Elder even mentions glass mirrors in natural history, but archaeological evidence indicates that these were lumpy, small, and not very reflective. Crafters simply lacked the techniques and technologies required to make high-quality glass mirrors. For many centuries, they remained uncommon and not terribly practical. That changed when Venetian artisans mastered the craft of glassmaking in the 16th and 17th centuries. The development of clear, high-quality glass helped bring about a golden age of scientific invention. But you can hear all about that in episode 14, Silicon. So that was one half of the problem solved, but there remained the issue of hot metal cracking glass. Florentine glassmakers found a way to coat glass with low temperature lead, but that still wasn't great for reflectivity. It wasn't until 1835 that Justice von Liebig put all the pieces together to create the first high-quality silver-backed mirror. You might remember von Liebig as the chemist who kept a sample of bromine in his Cabinet of Mistakes, 
but this was one of his more successful endeavors. He perfected a method of spraying a glass pane with a silver solution, coating it with a thin layer of the metal without breaking. That was pretty much how all mirrors were produced for the next century. The gradual introduction of high-quality glass mirrors, beginning with those backed by lead, had an impact upon society that's difficult to overstate. Visual arts trended toward portraiture rather than religious images. Improved microscopes and telescopes allowed scientists to understand the world we inhabit in ways no one had ever imagined, causing revolutions in medicine and religion. And once the common people could see themselves within a mirror's frame, it changed our psychology. No longer were we defined only by our place in the community. We were individuals in a way we had never seen ourselves before. It's most evident in the way people wrote. In personal correspondence, friends began to share their thoughts and feelings, rather than only dryly conveying information. Religious texts started to emphasize a personal relationship with God, and the first European autobiographies began to appear in the 15th century. Domestically, homes were constructed with fewer communal spaces in favor of private chambers. Economically, feudalism was slowly replaced with capitalism. Governments did not improve by much, but they at least began to represent the needs of more people than a monarch's court. The mirror did not invent the idea of the individual where none had existed before, and it was not the only reason for the rise of individualism in Europe. But our societies and our minds were transformed once we could peer through silvered glass to look ourselves in the eye. Sometimes, however, you don't want to see what something looks like right this minute. You want an image that stands still, a record of a single moment in time. Wouldn't you know, silver happens to be pretty useful there, too. Cameras are often advertised as the fastest, shiniest technology on the block, whether it's the camera on a mobile phone or a massive professional body that costs thousands of dollars. Despite that, the camera is quite literally an ancient invention. Some of the most celebrated writers of antiquity, from Mozi to Aristotle to Al-Kindi, mention in their works the pinhole camera. Sometimes called a camera obscura, it simply consists of a tiny hole that focuses a brightly lit scene onto the back wall of a darkened room. Regrettably, we do not have any photographs of the ancient world. While we might have had the camera, it would be thousands of years before anyone would invent the film. Johann Heinrich Schultz took the first furtive steps in that direction in 1727, 
when he showed that certain salts of silver would react when exposed to light. We saw a similar sort of thing with selenium, but rather than generating an electrical charge, the silver compound would visibly darken. Schultz used stencils to write words and sentences in the solution, and if you stretch your definitions a little bit, you could consider those the first photographs. But he never tried to make those images permanent, and they would quickly disappear as the entire liquid turned an inky black. Like all the technologies we examine, no one person got us all the way from Schultz's parlor trick to the Polaroid. It took the work of dozens over many decades. Joseph Nicephor Niepce figured out how to permanently fix an image to paper. Louis Daguerre made the process profitable. Henry Fox Talbot and John Herschel and Bausch and Lomb and countless other innovators shaped photography as a science, an art, and an industry. The entire time, silver was at the heart of the image-making process. Various improvements and tweaks would occasionally change things slightly, but in general, the method remained the same. Beams of light focused through the darkened chamber of a camera, would strike a film coated in silver salts. Each photon absorbed would cause that silver to react ever so slightly, rendering a negative black-and-white image out of microscopic grains of precious metal. Photographers would fumble around in pitch-black closets, prying that film out of its roll with a can opener, and delicately spooling it into a lightproof little tank. The tank would then be flooded with hydroquinone to develop the film, unmasking the lights and darks, followed by acetic acid to bring that process to a halt. A final bath of ammonium thiosulfate ensured that the image was permanently fixed to the film and would not degrade over time. All the while, the photographer would need to maintain a specific temperature and keep accurate time while shaking the tank with their hands. Of course, that was only half the process. Negatives in hand, now the photographer would head to the darkroom, using similar means to print those images on 8x10 sheets of paper also coated in silver halides. Pale yellow and purple liquids swirled together, the acrid stench of vinegar hung in the air, and the slightest error could ruin the entire afternoon. It's a far cry from pulling out your phone to take a quick selfie. For 95% of photography's history, the practice hasn't just resembled chemistry, it was chemistry. With acids and bases and a delicate hand, the photographer was not merely representing a scene, but seizing the very photons from that moment in time and hanging them upon a sheet of precious metal. Every frame was a triumph of chemistry. The present expertise of the person behind the camera 
and the centuries of experimentation that made it possible. Darkroom development was how the vast majority of photos were created from the 1920s until the turn of the 21st century, but it's effectively gone from modern-day photography. You could still create images by that same process today if you really wanted to, but it would merely be a curiosity or affectation on your part. Nowadays, the field is a miracle of optics, electronics, machine learning, engineering, miniaturization, and image processing, but chemistry has been left behind. Don't get me wrong, that's nothing to complain about. Cheap and powerful digital photography is a mighty force upon our media, our culture, and our governments. But not in the same way that analog photography was during the Cold War. In 1946, the technicians at Kodak's headquarters were scratching their heads. The company had recently been inundated with complaints from customers whose pictures were fogged, riddled with black dots. Kodak scientists were among the best and brightest in their fields, so they were pretty familiar with this issue. They had seen it once before, when small amounts of radium contaminated a batch of film. Even a minimal amount of radiation could damage the sensitive silver halide, completely ruining the product. Obviously, that's quite a problem when your brand's good name trades in high-quality film. So Kodak quickly learned where this radioactive contamination was coming from, and eliminated it from their supply lines. But that was well before 1946. A new source of pollution must have sneaked its way into their infrastructure. Kodak employee Julian Webb was particularly bothered by this mystery, and he worked his way back to a mill in Indiana. He found that the cardboard packaging produced at this mill was slightly radioactive. But it was not the kind of radiation the company was already familiar with. This was, quote, a new type of radioactive contaminant, hitherto unencountered. Webb continued to study the supply chain, and by 1949, he managed to connect all those fuzzy dots. The most likely explanation of the source of this radioactive contaminant, he wrote, appears to be that it consisted of wind-borne radioactive fission products derived from the atom bomb detonation in New Mexico on July 16th, 1945. That is to say, the world's first nuclear explosion, the Trinity Test, had rained fallout in vast swaths across the United States in quantities great enough to have effects that were literally visible. Apparently, Kodak didn't do much upon discovering this information. Not one more atomic bomb was detonated on American soil for the rest of the decade, so 
perhaps they wrote it off as a fluke. But this radioactive predicament would once again rear its head in 1951, when the US government began testing hundreds of nuclear weapons at the newly constructed Nevada test site. Kodak started seeing problems from the very start. A January snowstorm carried more than white powder to the company's headquarters in Rochester, New York. Despite being located over 2,000 miles away from the Nevada test site, the snow that fell was 25 times more radioactive than normal. Upon learning that nuclear fallout was gently drifting into their hometown, more than one technician panicked. What would this mean? They wondered. For their film? Of such grave concern was this question, that Kodak reached out to the G-men in charge of the whole thing, the Atomic Energy Commission. In turn, the AEC put on its broadest smile, reassuring everyone that there was nothing to worry about. In a front-page New York Times article, government reps emphasized that, quote, No levels of radiation have been found anywhere which could conceivably produce any damage to humans, to animals, or to water supply. That might have been good enough for the reading public, but not for Kodak. They still had to deal with damaged film, which, again, was pretty much their entire business. The next month, they threatened the AEC with a lawsuit due to the, quote, considerable amount of damage to our products resulting from the Nevada tests or from any further atomic energy tests. Well, the Atomic Energy Commission might have thought they could curb a little bad publicity, but they really did not want to discuss explicit details of top-secret nuclear tests in a civil lawsuit. They immediately offered a compromise. The government would provide Julian Webb personally, with schedules, maps, weather patterns, and other details on upcoming tests, so Kodak could take all the necessary precautions. All they had to do in return was never speak a word of this to anyone. In no way was this standard operating procedure. The AEC was not in the business of telling anyone outside the commission anything about their nuclear tests, including farms and municipalities that were downwind of the test site. We already know how this story ends. In episode 38, Strontium, we saw how children across the country were absorbing astronomical levels of radioactive material. In nearby St. George, Utah, cancer levels were as much as five times higher than expected, even two decades after atmospheric testing ceased. Records show that the government was well aware of the dangers of radioactive fallout. In 1948, an Air Force meteorologist advised the government to build their test site somewhere on the East Coast, so radioactive detritus would fall entirely over the Atlantic Ocean, instead of the mainland US. 
The Nevada test site was nonetheless chosen because of its proximity to pre-existing weapons labs. The government decided, quote, Accelerating the pace of the weapons development program is obviously a characteristic of such desirability that it could outweigh partial deficiencies in other respects. Even discounting the location, something as cheap and simple as public advisories to take iodine supplements could have saved many lives. Alas, Secrecy took precedence over all other concerns, especially in the earliest days of nuclear weapons testing. It's impossible to say precisely how far-reaching the resulting public health effects were. But hey, at least we have no shortage of tack-sharp photographs from the 1950s and 60s. That's not the end of Kodak's curious association with radioactive materials, but we don't have time right now to discuss the weapons-grade uranium that sat in the company's basement for 30 years. Tune in about 50 episodes from now for that story. But we're not quite finished with Atomic Tales for the day, because Silver was critical to success on the opposite side of the Manhattan Project's Veil of Secrecy. General Groves is the biggest SOB I have ever worked for. He is most demanding. He is most critical. He is abrasive and sarcastic. He disregards all normal organizational channels. He's the most egotistical man I know. He knows he is right and sticks by his decision. He abounds with energy and expects everyone to work as hard or even harder than he does. In summary, if I had to do my part of the atomic bomb project over again and had the privilege of picking my boss, I would pick General Groves. Major General Kenneth Nichols, The Road to Trinity. If Groves was arrogant, he had good reason. He had overseen $8 billion worth of domestic army construction during World War II leading projects from camps and depots to the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. By 1942, he was in charge of building Oak Ridge National Labs in Tennessee, destined to become the epicenter of scientific research on the Manhattan Project. It was probably the largest exercise in creative problem-solving that the world has yet known. And not just because scientists were working in uncharted intellectual territory. For instance, creating an atomic bomb was going to require several kilograms of uranium-235, millions of times more than anyone had produced by 1942. Any such effort was going to require a tremendous amount of energy, and that kind of production typically involved the use of copper. Lots and lots of copper to make miles of electrical wiring and powerful magnets. But there was a snag. Copper was also necessary for the production of artillery shells 
and it would be rather irresponsible to divert essential materials from that effort. There was a war on, after all. But copper wasn't the only suitable material for this job. Silver would actually work even better, since it's the most conductive metal there is. While silver wiring would ordinarily be fiscally imprudent, global war changed those circumstances. The only problem was, the army would need several thousand tons of silver, and they needed it now. No time to dig it out of the ground. So, on August 3rd, 1942, then-Colonel Kenneth Nichols met with the only people who could possibly fulfill such a request. Representatives from the Department of the Treasury. Now, the Treasury was willing to assist the military, but the gears of their respective bureaucracies did not mesh particularly well. Nichols later recounted the absurd scolding he received that day. He asked, How much do you need? I replied, 6,000 tons. How many troy ounces is that? He asked. In fact, I did not know how to convert tons to troy ounces, and neither did he. A little impatient, I responded, I don't know how many troy ounces we need, but I know we need 6,000 tons. That is a definite quantity. What difference does it make how we express the quantity? He replied, rather indignantly, Young man, you may think of silver in tons, but the treasury will always think of silver in troy ounces. Eventually they figured it out. The answer, incidentally, is about 400 million troy ounces. Due to the top-secret nature of the Manhattan Project, the army couldn't explain why they needed such an incredible amount of silver, or how they were going to use it. Fine, said the treasury, but they weren't going to just give it away. Every single troy ounce of those 6,000 tons needed to be returned in its original form and quality within five years of receipt. It was a deal. 400,000 bars of silver bullion thus began their journey from the Treasury's facility in West Point, New York, to refineries in New Jersey, then to magnet factories in Wisconsin, and finally to Oak Ridge National Labs in Tennessee where they generated the exceptionally strong magnetic fields necessary to refine the uranium-235 inside the first atomic bombs. Each step along the way, the metal was escorted by armed guards and meticulously accounted for. They would catch silver drill dust with sheets of paper, scrape excess metal off the insides of machines, and vacuum workers' coveralls to recover every sliver of silver humanly possible. These efforts were so successful that the military actually wound up with a million pounds more silver 
than they had borrowed from the treasury, likely recovered from years' worth of prior silver processing, like finding loose change between old couch cushions. At its peak, nearly 1% of all electricity generated in the United States was flowing through those silver coils every month. In total, the amount of energy spent enriching this uranium was equal to 100 times that it would release over Hiroshima. The choice of material didn't just conserve copper vital to the wartime effort. By using a metal that was not being strictly rationed, they also helped maintain the secrecy that was so critical to the nuclear program. That 6,000 tons originally requested eventually ballooned to 14,700 tons, enough to create a solid cube of silver 35 feet on a side. And it took well over five years to return to lender. The last bar of bullion was finally trucked back to West Point in June 1970. When the books were closed, only 0.034% of material had been lost over the many miles and 25 years it had been in service. For the past 50 years, those bars of silver have sat untouched in the back of a vault at the West Point Mint. There are no known plans to use that metal to mint a coin commemorating the Manhattan Project, but maybe if you contact someone in Congress, they'll consider it. It's hard to imagine a more appropriate sample of silver for your elements collection. Until that day comes, you obviously have plenty of other options available to you. After all, the pursuit of silver has been the influence behind some of the most significant events in human history. For example, by sheer coincidence, this episode is being published on the second Monday in October. Today, the United States and many other countries recognize Columbus Day as the celebration of a man who miscalculated the size of the Earth, who never once stepped foot on North American soil, and whose first instinct upon meeting a new society was to kidnap, rape, mutilate, enslave, and murder them by the hundreds of thousands. He also opened the floodgates to a truly global culture and economy, fueled in large part by a Spanish lust for silver, which they tore from the Americas in exchange for nothing. But we won't be talking about that today because that would be to retread ground we covered in episode 3, Lithium. Avarice, however, is not the only reason people have hoarded Element 47. There's also foolishness. For many years, con artists have been selling colloidal silver as a dietary supplement, vitamin, or cure for everything from arthritis and herpes to cancer and HIV. Silver can have some antiseptic properties, like copper does, but none of these claims are true. In fact, following that advice can cause 
a striking medical condition. Argyria, which is directly caused by consuming too much silver, makes one's skin turn a bluish gray. The color is more often akin to the pallor of a corpse, rather than the vivid hue of a smurf. One of the more well-known sufferers of the condition is Stan Jones, a Montana politician who began taking silver supplements prophylactically in advance of the year 2000. He believed that once the clock struck midnight, society would collapse, leading to a shortage of antibiotics. That did not occur, but colloidal silver does tend to be especially popular with people who worry about such things. Argyria doesn't technically do any harm, at least not in any medical sense. But another man with the condition, Paul Carrison, described how Argyria can still make one's life more difficult. People are rather reluctant to hire blue people, he said in a television interview. But as an element collector, you really have nothing to worry about. From mirrors, to photographs, to nationalities, there's nothing dangerous about seeing yourself in silver. Just see to it that there's no silver inside yourself. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. To learn which words rhyme with silver and orange, visit episodictable.com slash ag. Next time, we'll add cadmium to our palette. Until then, this is T.R. Appleton, reminding you that sometimes even mushroom clouds have a silver lining.